Welcome, everybody. So uh, our guest on the podcast today is Mark Proberg, uh, the legendary, I'll say, Mark Proberg. And I'm really sorry that this is just an audio podcast because you can't see the Nautic branding on the wall behind Mark here on the video, which is expert branding. Mark, I got to tell you that brilliant branding really is. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pat. I, you. you know, if I knew you were going to use the word legendary, I would have invited my wife to uh, hear this. Uh, oh. podcast. So <laughs> now I'm now I'm definitely going to going to have to reach out. She uh, she wouldn't buy it anyway. And we'll get to her later in the because, you know, we know that you married up. So I'll get to that later in yeah. our discussion. Yeah. There's yeah. some important points that touch on Diane there where she is. Let's just say right from the get go has kind of carried you for years. It's, it's, it's hard to admit, but unfortunately true. And we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so, OK, so my favorite question, because I know the answer is uh, humble beginnings. Where on earth did Mark Proberg begin his life? I began my life in Brooklyn, New York. That's oh. where uh, that's where I was born. Yeah. Crap. How did I not know this? I thought it was New Jersey. No, we moved to New Jersey when I was uh, 13 years old, but uh, my parents are both from uh, Brooklyn and uh, we lived in Brooklyn. Um, okay, but I really want to spend a couple hours on the New Jersey years, if you could. It'd be my pleasure. Let's start now. <laughs> so you moved to Fairlawn, right? Uh, close. Uh, you're, you're, you're really, you did a lot of homework here, Pat, obviously. You know, yeah. and we're going to fire yeah. the producer. Yeah, really. Uh, very close to Farallon. Uh, Wyckoff. Wyckoff. Uh, I lived in uh, Wyckoff, Franklin Lakes, you know, that area for a good number of years. And high school there, right? Yes, I did. I graduated from uh, high school in Franklin Lakes. Okay. So um, and now it's now a much better neighborhood than what you left. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I contributed to it being a better neighborhood when I did leave. <laughs> So trace the development from there to professional life, from there to law school. So college and law school? Yeah. Well, you know, in college, uh, although my degree was in history, my main uh, my main activity, I, both from a study standpoint and activity standpoint, was theater. You know, mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time doing theater, some acting, some playwriting, but primarily directing um, and actually thought pretty seriously for a while of whether I was going to go and uh, whether I was going to go in that direction. But uh I decided that eating would be important uh, and uh, basically uh, sold out. I, you know, went to the University of Rochester, uh, which uh, I had a very have had and have a very high regard for. And then I decided to go to law school and I went to uh, Boston College Law School um, and started really on a fairly, I would call a very, you know, fairly traditional route. You know, I uh, being from New Jersey at that point, I when I graduated, I got a job as an associate in a large New Jersey law firm and practiced there for a few years. And then I uh, migrated into a somewhat smaller firm uh, and, you know, really expected at that point that that would be my career. You know, I'd be a, I'd be a lawyer in New, in New Jersey. And uh, I was uh, just serving on a community board really just a volunteer community board. And a woman who was on the board came to me one day and said, hey, my husband has this business idea and, you know, you're a lawyer and uh, could, could you help? And I said, well, I'm not I'm not really a business attorney. I'm just kind of a litigation attorney. And she said, I know, but you're a lawyer and we can't afford to pay anybody. Um, so I said, all right, well, this is going to go into the category of you get what you pay for, but, you know, I'd be certainly very happy to, to speak with him. And, uh, I did. And, um, 
I won't bore you with the long version of this, but he he uh, he was an employee of the phone company, not an executive, an employee of the phone company, and he had worked on a project at the phone company that had to do with uh, processing bill payments for people who pay bills in person, which wow. at least at the time, a lot of people don't realize how many people did. Yeah, uh, Lower income people, yeah. sometimes elderly folks who wanted to literally have a receipt, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I wish I could tell you that I, I, in my infinite ability to analyze uh, great businesses that I saw the, the wisdom uh, and the potential because he had done it for the phone company in New York. And he said, uh, he had come up with this solution for how to process in-person payments, and he wanted to bring it to other utilities. And, of course, his boss was like, I don't really care about other utilities. It's like we're ready to move on to the next project. So he he was thinking really about leaving and offering this thing that he had developed to other utilities, phone companies, electric companies, gas companies, that kind of thing. And uh, I said, well, that sounds wonderful, but what, what does that have to do with me? And he said, well, I have no idea how to do that. I said, well, I don't really either. Um, could you help me? And I said, well, I don't really do that. And, uh, he said, but I can't really pay anybody. So in, again, literally the way the my, the business portion of my career started was I was trying to do a favor for his wife. That's really what it came down to. So I and, said, All and, right. and what, and what lesson did we learn? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's really, that's really what it was. So I said, okay, why don't you give me a small piece of this? a very small piece, and I'll try to do this like in my spare time. I'll try to help you out. I'll, I'll, I'll try to figure this out. I'll try to figure out who to even connect you with or how this works or anything associated with it. And that's what I did. And it turns out that, uh, it, that, that he had had a, a brilliant idea. And over the next three years, we sold that service to more than 25 utilities. Um, and within three years, uh, the business was processing over 4 million payments a month. Um, and I'm still working as a lawyer. Um, pretty quickly, because the business was starting to gain traction, I actually was able to work something out where the firm that I was with was billing the business for my time, which basically gave me the opportunity to you know, spend more and more time on it. But I was still practicing law. And then after three years, we got a call one day from the CEO of Western Union. And uh, for a variety of reasons, they wanted to buy the business. Um, and uh, they did. And when they did is really when I stopped practicing law and went to work for uh, Western Union. And that's just the way that I, I got into business. And then from there, it was just, uh, you know, I started at Western Union working on the business. Uh, the CEO, through a gross error in judgment, decided that I was capable of doing some other things, <laughs> kept putting me into all of these other jobs that I really knew nothing about. Um, maybe, maybe he was trying to find something you could do well. Maybe that thing I could do. Yeah. Uh, eventually, I ran uh, all of the Western Union business in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, and, you know, it was one of these things where he'd throw me into this project in Argentina and I didn't speak a word of Spanish. So I was going to Berlitz at the time, trying desperately to learn something conversational. Got to the point after six months where I, you know, could could say the important things like cerveza and you know the things you the things you really need to know. And then he'd call one day and he'd be like, There's this new project in Mexico. You need to work on that. I said, Well, I 
I've been to Mexico once, you know, on, on my honeymoon. He said, well, you speak Spanish. You know, it was one of, it was one of those kinds, of, but it was really is a great relationship. And anyway, my career kind of went on from there. And, uh, you were still located in New Jersey when you were in Western was, Union? Yeah, Western Union was in New Jersey as well. So that uh, that worked okay. out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So Western Union, then did they sell it? You ended up with Wackenhut, right? Yeah. Well, eventually what happened was the person who was running Western Union became CEO of a company in Atlanta. He took several of us with him. I I went, I was one of uh, two or three people who went with him to the company in Atlanta I worked for two different companies uh, in in Atlanta while I was while I was there, and uh, after I left the the second one, I, I was uh, president and chief operating officer of a company called Profit Recovery Group, and uh, I left that. Uh, now it's about twenty years ago, and I was looking for, I I I was hoping to find an opportunity where I could run something for a private equity firm. Um, mm-hmm. That's really what it was. I thought that. That would be a good fit for me. I I I like the private equity model. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you hear a lot of different things, pro and con from folks. I'm a I'm obviously a huge proponent, but a big a big part of the reason is if you have, especially if you have the right partner, there's a great alignment in private equity between the private equity firm, the limited partners who invest in the private equity firm, and management. Because everybody is trying in a positive and constructive way to create shareholder value. There, it's just a very strong sense of alignment. It's not a political environment, particularly if you're with the right partner. It's just about, you know, how do we how do we make this happen? And um, I was connected through a search firm with a private equity firm who had just bought this thing called a PEO a few months uh, earlier, right? I, I wasn't familiar with it. I mean... I couldn't really even spell PEO 30 days before I joined Oasis. I, I didn't know anything about it, um, but uh, it, it was a good firm, and they had purchased the business from Wackenhut. Oh, that was it. That was the yeah, Wackenhut. It was just a small. It was a small business. They had purchased it about six months earlier, uh, and they were looking for somebody to come in in a in a leadership role, and that's the way I got into this crazy industry. And. Was it Oasis that they bought? Yeah, uh, Oasis had been formed at Wackenhut in uh, 1996. Uh, it really kind of came out of a strategic planning project. Um, uh, the the person who became my partner and dear friend, uh, Terry Mayotte, uh, mm-hmm. an extremely talented uh, person, mm-hmm. uh, had had really been a, a driving force at Wackenhut. He he was uh, yeah. a, an officer at Wackenhut. And then when Wackenhut itself was sold, uh, Terry was uh, the, the key architect in spinning it out mm-hmm. from Wackenhut, Oasis I'm talking about, into a separate uh, entity. And he ultimately became the, the CEO of Oasis. And mm-hmm. you know we worked together for, for many, many years. Again, he had been with it right from the beginning. He was really a founder in 1996. Wow. It spun out in uh, 2003. And then I joined the company in 2003 as the CEO. And how many worksite employees? Did you have any worksite employees? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Oasis uh, had done some uh, things already organically and had done a couple of acquisitions. It was actually, a, it was actually a, you know, by, by usual industry standards, even when I joined it, it, you know, it was pretty sizable. It had about, I'm going to say about 30,000 uh, worksite wow. employees. There were maybe 150 people working in the unit, you know, round numbers. I mean, something something like that. It was 
almost exclusively Florida-based at that mm-hmm. point where Wagon Hut was located. I'm going to say, if I remember correctly, 80, 85% of the business easily was in Florida. Mm-hmm. And then there were a couple of small mm-hmm. pockets outside of Florida. Mm-hmm. So the drill really was, it was, it was a nice business. It was a profitable business, mm-hmm. but the, the, uh, the task was how do you scale it and, yeah. and how do you, how do you turn it into a, you know, a regional and then a national player? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. And, and by the way, we'll come back to private equity because I've got that on my notes. I want to talk to you about, you know, sort of giving and receiving. You've been on both sides of private equity. I, so I want to get into that a little bit more. But in the meantime, uh, you just touched on it. So scaling, you know, I've heard so many people talk about hitting the wall at 30,000, right? That, that, that That's yeah. it. So talk to me about scaling. So when you got there, 30,000, but then yeah. You drove tremendous growth there, and we'll get into the into the sale. You know, oh, actually, yeah. we're in private equity in the sale. But talk about scaling. Like, how how did you scale? You know, so pre yeah. paychecks, how many people did did uh, Oasis have? When we sold, we had close to three hundred thousand. Yeah. Okay. Uh, worksite employees. So and, tell uh, me about that ten x scale. Yeah, and the and the organization too went from probably in round numbers over that whole period of time, that 15, 16 years between two thousand and three and two thousand and eighteen, we went from about one hundred and fifty employees, internal employees, to about fifteen hundred when we uh, when when we sold. And uh, you know, there's no easy or quick uh, answer uh, to that. Uh, I think. I think it there's a lot of different aspects to it. And also, there's no question you're going to make mistakes along the way. I certainly did. And you're just going to have to make a bunch of decisions. Hopefully, you make some smart ones, more smart ones than not smart ones. And when you realize that you made the wrong decision, you try to recognize that as soon as possible and not be defensive about it and, and rectify it. But And by the way, Mark, what I typically do is I blame someone else when that happens. Yeah. Well, I had that line at Oasis all the time. In fact, I used to tell people all the time, if things go well, I'm the CEO. If things go badly, I have to find somebody to blame. But I don't want you to feel like I'm slinking around with that. I'm right. very transparent about it. That's, yes. that's, basically, yes. uh, that's basically the way it's going to be. <laughs> I pride myself on being a straight shooter, you know, in that, uh, in that regard. But yeah, as far as the scaling, you know, I think, I think there's, again, so many different aspects to it. But I think I, I would just point to a couple, right? A very big one, and I think this is true in any industry, but certainly true in the PEO industry, is can you build a productive sales engine? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of, as you know, a lot of the very successful companies in our industry that are more local, shall we say, right? Fewer worksite employees, maybe one processing center, maybe one state, maybe a group of clients that's almost exclusively in that state. There's a lot of that in, in our industry, and they're great businesses and great people. Um, the thing that is hard, particularly hard if you're trying to scale, is rather than growing with one or two salespeople or largely growing through word of mouth, how can you create uh, a productive uh, sales force that's going to make that sing, you know, if you will? Yeah. Um, the other thing is that. As you know, uh, knowledge, industry knowledge, notwithstanding the fact that I didn't have it, um, there were a lot of people in Oasis who did. And um, and industry knowledge, it, it's it's not the simplest industry in the world, yeah. as you know, yeah. is very important. And to me, the, one of the trickiest aspects of scaling, in addition to what I just mentioned, is um, you've got people who have the knowledge, they have the the talent, 
in many instances, they have the relationships. But operating in a larger environment is often somewhat different. Mm-hmm. You still want to keep the, the entrepreneurial feel the yeah. customer feel yeah. and everything associated mm-hmm. with it. But there's no question if you're going to get larger, you're going to need processes and systems and controls. And you're going to need people who have experience with that. So the yeah. thing that's always tricky is, um, and, and, and through the years, frankly, there were some good hires and, and there were some issues because you'd be bringing somebody in that had experience operating a larger business and a larger environment. Had that experience of how to implement processes and systems and controls, but they didn't necessarily know the PEO industry. Yeah, they weren't necessarily comfortable with some of the things that are required in order to be successful there. Yeah. So, it, in in scaling, it's constantly a question of to what extent can you develop the people who are there <laughs> in order to be able to function successfully in a larger environment, yeah. and to what extent can you bring people in. Who have operated in a larger environment, yeah, who can learn the things that they need to learn about how to be successful, you know, in our crazy industry. Yeah. And I don't think there's really any any simple answer for that. Yeah. I think that's one decision at a time, one person at a time. Yeah. But it's it's very important, I think, when when you talk about scaling. Yeah. So yeah, that leads me to another point is uh, another question. So to me, you know, the I guess I would say the the um the dark underbelly of scaling <laughs> is culture, right? And, you know, every every year we go to Stanford and somebody out there uh, quotes Drucker as saying uh, culture yeah. eats strategy for breakfast, right? So I do know, you know, uh, during your Oasis years that that was palpable. You know, I'm not prone to to praise when it comes to you. You know that. You can, uh, you can, you can lay on as much of that as you'd like. Uh, yeah, I think maybe I'm next. Happy about that. Yeah. The next podcast, maybe. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, but it was palpable that everybody you talked to in Oasis was like, you know, it was Mark's organization, you know, and you're uh you created the culture, right? And and that was a great culture and people supported one another. So uh, again, not that that's easy at 30,000, but it's harder at 300,000. Worksite employees is not yeah. 150, it's harder at 1,500. So, how do you maintain the culture when you scale 10x? Well, I'll mention a couple of things in that regard. And first of all, um, I, I, I do, all kidding aside, appreciate what you're saying. And hopefully I did play a role in the development of the culture. But culture is everybody's responsibility, especially mm-hmm. in the management team. And I had a great team that mm-hmm. was as responsible or even more responsible in many ways for making sure that the culture was where it needed to be and that we operated the way that we needed to operate. Mm-hmm. As far as my particular view I completely agree with that. I am from that school. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got the right culture and the right people who are operating consistent with that culture, I I, I don't want to go so far as to say you can accomplish anything, but mm-hmm. it's close. Um, mm-hmm. Because when you start dealing with adversity, which mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. um, if you've got the right culture and you've got talented people, more often than not, way more often than not, you're going to find a way to navigate through it. For me, Again, there's a lot of different components to this, but I will tell you that going back 20 years, the most important thing to me is, so here's a new person coming into the company. Mm-hmm. Not only am I a new person coming into the company, I'm coming in as the CEO. Yeah. And not only am I coming in as the CEO, mm-hmm. but everybody figured out pretty quickly, this guy can't spell PEO. <laughs> so 
what do you what do you do you know about that you can get defensive about it or not get defensive about it i chose to not get defensive about it but with respect to the culture aspect one of the things that people look at i think when a new leader is coming in what does the leader focus on where does the leader start right so if you walk into a new environment and your door is closed or you're only asking financial questions or uh whatever um People are watching, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the new the new sheriff is in town. The first thing that I did when I got to Oasis, the first thing was went off site with the management team, and we developed together our mission statement and our values. Mm-hmm. And I talked about that mission statement and those values almost every day that I was in the company. <laughs> Every time uh, I was in any kind of employee meeting, there would be a reference back to our mission statement or our values. Anytime there was a new hire orientation, and I attended almost all of them for as many years as I could, and then even when I had to delegate, you know, it still attended as many as I could. My role in that session would be to talk about our mission statement and our values mm-hmm. and how important they are. So that sends a, a message for starters yeah, of, yeah. of how important it is. But then more importantly than that, the demonstration that we, starting with me, but with everybody else, are going to live that every day. Yeah. So like, for example, our values, if you would say uh, one, our first value was, um, and I won't bore you with the long version of this, but it was, if you have integrity, nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. If you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. Yeah. If you take that literally, that's not true. You'd like (laughs) to say nothing else matters, but of course there are things that matter in addition to integrity. But by stating it as the uh, absolute, what you're basically saying is it's so important that if you're experiencing anything inconsistent with that, it's Mm -hmm. unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And you're putting that stake in the ground. We only only had three and and we talked about them for the whole 15 years I was there. we give all uh, employees the tools and the opportunity to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So what that meant is that if you're an employee and you're working in the organization and you feel like that's not the case, mm-hmm. even something as simple as I've told my manager that I need a printer and I don't have a printer. The point is not that we're going to uh, be consistent with that 100% of the time as much as we'd like to be. The point is, you know, if you're an employee anywhere in the organization, that if you're experiencing anything inconsistent with that, it's inconsistent with our values and it's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And you are on solid ground to step forward. Mm-hmm. And the last one was we uh, only promise what we can deliver, but mm-hmm. we deliver what we promise. <laughs> and so we're making the same representation to the client. Were there instances when you had that many worksite employees and thousands and thousands of clients where we overpromised or we didn't deliver? Mm-hmm. Of course. But mm-hmm. the point that we're making to the client is if you are experiencing anything inconsistent with that, you are experiencing something that's inconsistent with our values. Mm-hmm. So and, and and that's unacceptable. And mm-hmm. we want you to know that that's unacceptable. And you should feel free to step forward to anybody you deal with in the organization, including me, mm-hmm. and let them know and reach out because yeah. you know that that's unacceptable to us. Yeah. So you can tell probably from the way that I'm talking about it, the passion that I have yeah. for this. Yeah. But I talked about this every day. I mean, I haven't talked about our mission and, or, or our values in, you know, four years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, 
uh, but but that kind of thing is yeah. so critical, and and it is the underpinning for everything else. And then, yeah, to Drucker's point, sure. Once you have that, okay, you yeah. know, what what are the strategies that you want to uh, yeah. deploy? How are you going to implement those strategies? Whatever, but all under the umbrella of and and a mission. I will not bore you with it now, but the mission is very very similar in terms of you know the commitment to de- to develop innovative workforce solutions mm-hmm. that contribute substantially to our client success right very mm-hmm. outwardly focused mm-hmm. very impact focused on yep. what the client would be experiencing yeah so you mentioned three uh values uh, integrity uh, you know don't overpromise what was the third uh the uh employees giving uh the employees the tools and the opportunity to make a difference okay. so integrity an employee-focused value, a client-focused value. And again, the team developed those. That's the other thing. This is not like I showed up one day with a sheet of paper. I mean, we went off-site for a Mm -hmm. few days, Mm -hmm. and we whiteboarded this. And we had actually two facilitators and Mm -hmm. really worked through this. And, you know, at that time, many of the people at Oasis had never been through anything like that. Yeah. 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 The new CEO is coming in. It's like, who is this guy? Um, (laughs) Probably people thought it was a little flaky. It wouldn't be the first time, you know, that people viewed me that way. But but we we did it, and uh, 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 I, I have to give you this this funny uh, postscript, Pat. We did it. We did it offsite, and one person took the responsibility for actually writing it down. And I I hope she'll listen to this. Her, her name was Barbara Schneider, and she had a really strong background in English and writing, and she took the responsibility. Mm-hmm. So she wrote it up. Mm-hmm. We all had an opportunity to look at it and we all commented on it and it was revised and it was done. She came back to me one day uh, right after that. And she said, you know, I've been looking at it and I just think there's a couple of words here, a couple of phrases that are not quite right. I know this is going to stand the test of time. I'd like to make the revision. I said, well, that's fine. You know, that's good. She did it. Mm-hmm. A day later, she came back to me. You know, I'm I'm still looking at this and I know we're about to print it and it's going to go on cards and everything associated with it. And I just want to change like these two or three words. It's fine, Barbara. Go go ahead. Go ahead and change the word. This went on like four or five times. Okay. Each time I'm trying to be accommodating because this is very important to me. And it's clearly she's even more of a perfectionist than I am. The fifth time she came back, I said, if you call me again, I'm going to fire you. I just, I want you to understand that. Okay. Now I'm about to start the printing. The next day she calls me, this is a true story. And she said, even if it costs me my job, this is a final revision that has to be made. So to say that we wordsmith this would be a gross uh, understatement, but anyway, we did and and it got printed and we, we lived with it for Uh, 15 years. And empowering the employees, one of the values you've got to, right? Yeah. You got to yeah. let it go. Yeah, it's funny. One of the things you mentioned in terms of the closed doors and stuff and, and culture, when I was at the labor department, Bill Brock came in, who uh, uh, was a mentor and just uh, of mine, just a wonderful human being. And uh, he came in after another secretary got moved out and uh, the prior administration, all the doors were closed. It was us versus them, the political appointees versus the uh, the career employees. I mean, I wasn't there. I came in with Brock and Brock literally opened the doors. He literally opened the doors. So when you would walk into the secretary suite, it was this big reception area. And then there were hallways to the left and right. And 
he opened all those doors. And at the end of a very long hallway was the secretary's office with big, heavy wooden doors, oak doors. He opened those. And, you know, everybody would come into the secretary's suite for everything, for deliveries or anything they had, paper to drop off. Yeah. And they would look down the hall, say, like, is that the secretary? If you sit me on his desk, you'd you, you yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's him. It's such it's such an important thing. And look, I I, I didn't do it enough, but um one of the things that I always ask my head of HR to force me to do, because you know, you just get busy, is you have to come pull me and I I would walk around, you know, the entire place, which yeah. took more and more time, you know, as we grew. Yeah. Not with an agenda, you know, just um, yeah. you know, just to talk to people, see how things are going on. I rarely closed my door to your yeah. point. I mean, if yeah. my door was closed, it was just closed, you know, really because it had to be. I yeah. really tried to leave it open. And as we had offices really around around the country, you know, same kind of thing. I, yeah. One of the things that got hard for me is when we were smaller, in the very beginning, any office that we had, I mean, I'd be there consistently once a quarter. Mm -hmm. um, when you start doing a bunch of acquisitions and there's more and more offices and whatever, that became more and more difficult. And and it was an aspect of the job on a personal level. I will tell you, I understood, but I didn't like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I got to the point at the end where like somebody could be working for the company and get like a five-year service award. And like, I never met them. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very hard for me. Again, you get it. I mean, you mm -hmm. understand it, um, mm -hmm. but but it was inconsistent with my style and, yeah. and the way that I like to uh, operate. But anything you can do in that regard, to your point with employees, again, so much of a longer discussion. I mean, yeah. it's to do employee lunches. And, yeah. you know, the joke was, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You can just sign up, you know, lunch <laughs> lunch with the CEO, right? And again, come into the boardroom, you know, anybody yep. in the company, you know, come on in, 10 people. But the reason there's no such thing as a free lunch, we're not going to charge you, but we are going to make you talk. Mm -hmm. So I would go around the table and, you know, uh, what are you doing? How's it going? You know, what's going on? Do you have any questions? Uh, all, all of those kinds of things. And, you know, I always found that whether it was in our corporate office or when I went out and around, going around with people on sales calls or client yeah, visits yeah. or anything associated with it. Uh, actually, those were my fondest memories. You yeah, know, probably yeah. the things that I enjoyed the most. Yeah. Yeah. So Oasis makes the move into private equity. So Let's start the private equity discussion sure. as being a a receiver of private equity. You're you're now on the other side of it. We'll get to that in a second. Yes, yeah, sure. But yeah. What's tell me about that process? Like, sure. you decide. Well, okay, this is the time to do this, and why? Yeah. And there are lots of firms out there, and who? Sure. And, and and then what's that like once you have an overlord? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, the way that it started was, um, you know, Wackenhut is primarily a security guard, mm -hmm. and it formed this. PEO, again, mm -hmm. longer discussion, you know, as to as to why. And then Wackenhut itself went up for sale in 2002. Okay. And was ultimately purchased by a European security company. Mm -hmm. So PEO was not core, you know, okay. to that. Yeah. So as I said, management at the time, principally uh, Terry, saw the, the need and the opportunity to kind of spin Oasis out, if you will. So... Um, and looked for a private equity partner because that was the way to do it. It was essentially somebody to uh, purchase it. It was not a particularly large transaction, but to purchase it from Wackenhut mm -hmm. so that it could survive as a separate entity. And he did 
identify a firm. You know, you know, at that time, you probably know this, uh, but 20 years ago, um, there was not a lot of private equity interest <laughs> in uh, in PEO. In fact, the few yeah. that looked at it yeah. were scared off uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, very often. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, yeah. but it was, um, you know, I can't tell you how many questions, you know, there were in those years, of, you know, is it legal? You know, can you do it? Like, like, what is it? I mean, just it was it was a different day, you know, than um, than where we are now. And in, in large part, and we can talk about it due to Napio's efforts and, and uh, you know, just all the things that that continue to be done, you know, in order to help the industry in that in that regard, just gain acceptance. Right. Yeah. Um, so so my involvement with Oasis, I mean, I was hired by the private equity firm yeah. that had just purchased it from Wackenhut. So mm -hmm. I never really dealt with Oasis outside of private equity. Now, what happened was we were fortunate enough to grow it quite a bit over the next 15 years. And we sort of went through five different private equity partners yeah. Yeah. as we grew yeah. it because, yeah. you know, the, that's not atypical for the private equity model for a private equity firm to make an investment, hopefully help nurture it, help it grow, um, recognize a profit and consummate a transaction, sometimes to a strategic buyer, sometimes to another private equity firm. Again, in the Oasis case, both ended up eventually happening. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but that's that's kind of the way that's kind of the way it worked. And <clears throat> again, as you can tell from even what I'm doing now, I am a big believer in in the model. I mean, I was very fortunate. I mean. Private equities, like anything else, there are good partners and less good partners. Um, we had only good partners, so we were very fortunate with the five that we uh, that we did business with through the years. But it was, you know, just generally a very collaborative, very positive process in terms of how do we invest in the business, how do we grow in the business, and how do we recognize some of the fruits of those labors? You know, if uh, if if we are being successful in creating incremental value. Yeah. I know I, every time I would I'd talk to you, say, how's it going? You're like, boy, these people expect me to make money every day. So, yeah. I mean, it's horrible. <laughs> you know, I mean, we already made money last right. year. It's like, how come how come we have to make more? Didn't seem fair. <laughs> right. Again this year? Come yeah. on. Yeah. And more um, and greater. Yeah. OK, so tell me about the uh, paychecks transaction. Well, you know, there are a number of different things involved with that. And I'll, I'll, I'll be careful, I, too, in terms of I don't even remember from you know, <laughs> non-disclosure uh, reasons. But, um, you know, through the years, if, if you're going to be in that kind, you're going to you're going to do some dancing with a lot of different uh, people, you know, especially because, you know, we went through at Oasis a number of different sale processes, really. I mean, that's that's uh, that, that happened. And so. You know, that's not atypical that um, somebody that's in the space, you know, might be looking at a, a, a potential uh, acquisition. So I, I think the reason that the transaction happened in 2018, you know, at least at least from my perspective is, you know, it's just a question of the, the timing was right uh, all, all around. Um, we we could have continued going in a private equity direction. I mean, that opportunity existed. Um, some of it was personal for me, you know, mm -hmm. I was getting into my 60s. And, you know, if you start signing up for another private equity deal, you know, you're signing up really for got to be willing to say, you know, I'm I'm here for the next five years, you know, mm -hmm. to do it. And so there, there was a personal aspect to it. I, I wasn't sure. But also, and again, only they could really fully answer this, the, the current 
CEO of, uh, of Paychex, John Gibson, uh, uh, was the person that we were primarily you know, dealing with at, at that time. Um, he was obviously in a senior executive role. Um, but I think and, and, had, was, and had come out of the PEO space. He had experience in the PEO space. He did. And um, and I think, you know, the timing was just right in the sense that, you know, Paychex had a PEO. Um, PEO was an important part of their go forward strategy. But the scale of Paychex's PEO was not the scale of some of the largest players. Um, mm-hmm. Again, Paychex, of course, is a is a huge company and a very successful company. But in the PEO specifically, you know, they did not have uh, a, a business of the same scale uh, as some of the other large players in the space. And I think that given the strategic importance of PEO, um, mm-hmm. they wanted to change that. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with the success that Paychex has had and, you know, just their profits and their liquidity yeah. and everything associated with it, yeah. if it was something that they wanted to do, it's certainly something that that they could. And so. Yeah. You know, we just had a number of discussions and one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, like like sometimes happens very often. These deals don't happen. But uh, but that yeah. one did. Yeah. So let's switch sides of the table. Now you're in the private equity space. Um, and by the way, I would say when you're at o- Oasis, again, uh, you're going to owe me something for all this praise. Uh, I talked to so many people who said, uh Mark made the difference. It was, I got to sell my company or wasn't I? Mark made the difference. We felt comfortable with Mark, right? And conversely, I talked to people who said somebody came in and offered me, you know, a thousand X or something, right? It's a preposterous number, but they were jerks, you know? Yeah. And I, I didn't want to do business with them, right? It was a big part. So uh, without, you know, uh, uh, teeing up that answer, now that you're in private equity, what because a lot of people listening or you know uh, have sold or thinking about sell, selling or are getting approached to sell all the time. What do you look for? What's the what's the secret sauce? Like when you go in, what is it that you know from a private equity standpoint? I know you're not doing a lot in the PEO space these days. You're doing other. You're, you're in every other sector under the sun. But uh, just writ large, private equity. What do you look for? You walk in again as, as somebody who's familiar with the space, obviously, but you're a PEO guy, not a private equity guy, right? But again, yeah, literate sure. private equity. Sure. But you come in, you land on a company. What? 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 Yeah. What is besides EBITDA? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I will. I will give you that answer uh, in a moment. And I appreciate all oh, kidding aside, Pat, what you're saying about the Oasis side. But just a quick reference on that before I answer your specific question, and it goes back to a question that you asked earlier. Um, to the extent that people felt that way, and hopefully they felt that way after the transaction, not just before the transaction, <laughs> I think they did. Yeah. But it really goes back to the cultural point. Um, we were acquiring companies that had good, strong, positive cultures. Um, we had a good, strong, positive culture. We could see that in the companies that we were acquiring. They could see that in us. And a big part of the deal, leaving aside the economics, was convincing people. And I think the reason people got comfortable was, hey, we're going to respect your culture. We Mm -hmm. do respect your culture. Mm -hmm. A big part of the reason we're doing this is because of your culture. And so when we do a transaction and when you become part of the Oasis organization, we're going to respect that. We're going to honor that. We're going to help try to build on that. We're not going to destroy that. Mm -hmm. And I believe that 
I really do that because of my team that we were successful in that regard. Well, what happens? What do people do when they're thinking of selling? They talk to people who sold. You know our industry. Everybody talks to one another. Yeah. What's yeah. it like, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a positive experience? Did you have a negative experience? That's kind of how you become a buyer of choice. Mm-hmm. And we were fortunate enough to not only prevail in a number of processes, but sometimes get deals done without processes. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the, probably the greatest honor would be somebody saying, well, go to Oasis first. Let's see if we can get a, a, a good, reasonable, solid offer from Oasis. Because if we can sell to Oasis, that's where we want to go, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no yeah. greater honor than that. But I think that comes from the dynamic that we're yeah. talking about, yeah. Yeah. really to yeah. start with culture. Yeah. Shifting to your question, uh, that becomes very important when you're evaluating businesses, right? I mean, look, there there are a lot of things that a private equity firm will look at. Um, you hear the phrase quite a bit in private equity of TAM, total available market, where mm. somebody's basically looking at something and really trying to understand what's the go forward market opportunity, right? So you've mm-hmm. got this business and you know what is that opportunity going to be? But first and foremost, First and foremost, at the top of the list, again, leaving aside anything with the with the numbers and the numerical trends and the momentum, the financial momentum of the business, which of course is important, you're investing in a management team. Yeah. You are investing in a team because you don't know exactly what the world is going to be like. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when you buy something if a month later there's going to be a pandemic or a recession or a yeah. bank failure or anything else. You don't know. So what you're investing in is you're investing in a team and you're and, and and that encompasses everything that you would imagine, right? It starts with integrity, right? Mm-hmm. My dealing with, you know, honest people, mm-hmm. you move to ability and you move to culture and you move to, you know, who are these people? What are they like? They what are they capable of? What 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 are they going to be like to work with? What are their capabilities going to be in terms of driving and growing? Uh, and and their commitment to uh, to the business. So no, those just, are the things that are at the top of the list. But but how do you assess that? So again, in the PEO industry where you were for years, yeah. you know these are friends of yours. You got a sense of it. Yes. But for people who are coming in from private equity who yeah. don't know, or you go to companies now in industries you don't know, you show up. You go, hey, does everybody here have integrity? Yep. Is it a good management team? Yeah, let's buy. Yeah. Right. How, yeah. how do you assess that? Well, I mean, you know, you're I'll on, say you're new on the planet, right? I'll say I'll say a couple of different things. Um, first of all, you're right. Um, I've I've not been involved most recently in the PEO space. Um, that's because, with respect to the sale, there were some restrictions that uh, <laughs> that tends to happen. Interestingly enough, though, uh, those restrictions expired this year. So. Um, <laughs> It's uh, it's it's interesting in terms of some of the discussions that that might start that might start having. Okay. When I sold, okay. you know, five years seemed like twenty, uh, right. but five right. years are almost up. So that's uh, that that yeah. that that's an interesting thing. Yeah. But, but leaving that aside, I will tell you very very honestly, that's the thing. Right. I feel so fortunate to be affiliated with Nautic Partners. It's a great firm. I had a great experience with them as a portfolio company CEO. You want to talk about integrity and honor and respect and collaboration. And I really, I couldn't ask for more. I had a wonderful, wonderful experience working with Nautic, you know, in, in that regard. And, and Nautic was in our investment for almost nine years. You know, we wow. did a recapitalization in the middle where we brought in some other parties. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just, I just worked with great people. And so it was really 
comfortable for me joining the firm because I knew I knew who I was affiliating myself yeah. with. You know, you yeah. can't fake it basically yeah. for nine years. Yeah. But one of the things that I feel very fortunate about is there's a learning aspect to it for me, right? Mm-hmm. And I walked into it with the same question that you asked. It's like, if I'm looking at a PEO, well, doesn't mean I can't be fooled, but it's less likely, especially mm-hmm. if I'm looking at it with my team, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm not going to know what I'm looking at. But how do you walk into a business or an industry that you've not been affiliated with? The only, the only thing I can say is that, especially the people who've been doing it for a long time, they're really, really good at it. Mm-hmm. They're not just taking the answer. Um, they're kicking the tires at a level that uh, you probably are have, have, have not seen very mm-hmm. often. They're mm-hmm. talking to a lot of people. They're analyzing it. Uh, we utilize uh, sometimes to the extent that we need to outside expertise. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of muscle memory in it. You know, if you've looked at a lot of businesses over a lot of years, you do get a sense uh, and uh, as to as to what you're looking at and what you're dealing with. And again, much like I said earlier in a different context, I don't think there are any simple answers for that. There's Mm -hmm. not any one answer to that. But I will tell you that the most successful private equity firms, and I would include Nautic in that group, have to be very good at that kind of assessment, because the reality of the situation, everybody's accountable. Private equity firms are accountable. And you've got to be right a heck of a lot more than you're. (laughs) You can make a mistake or two and still have a successful fund, but you can't make a lot of them. So, you know, you've and and if you do, then you're not going to be a successful private equity firm. So I, I would say that my partners and the people who work in the firm, and I certainly try to, uh, you know, carry my weight, but the people in the firm are really, really good at that kind of assessment, at both identifying the potential opportunity, but also identifying whether this is going to be the best vehicle and these are going to be the best people uh, in order to be able to capitalize on that and generate good returns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you one more business question. I'm going to ask you some fun questions. Uh, what's your advice to a new PEO? We got startups all over the place. Uh, people coming into this space, as you can imagine. What's your advice? Somebody coming in or taking over a PEO or starting yeah. in this space? What's your advice? I, I always felt and I continue to feel that one of the main differentiators among PEOs, you know, if we're going there, is other than trying to deliver some level of arbitrage Mm -hmm. (laughs) on, you know, a worker's comp or Mm -hmm. SUDA, or in some instances, medical or whatever, what are you bringing to the table? You know, I mean, what is the value proposition in terms of really helping small business owners try to run and grow their businesses? So, you know, that to me is very, very key. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you just start getting into uh, all some of the management issues that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say I was joining an existing organization, but I would mm-hmm. say the same thing if, 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 you know, somebody coming in or somebody starting, start with culture, you know, start with mission, start with values, start with what you want to stand for, start with what you're about, you know, yeah. put the put the stake in the ground yeah. um, and, and, and go there. I mean, I still think, and I know you do, it's still a very good time. You know, it's a very exciting time yeah, in the yeah, in the industry, yeah. more so in many ways. You know, the industry is better established, better understood, more and more traction, you know, every every, uh, every year. Yeah. So I think that the opportunity is there. But ultimately, to be successful, it always comes down to differentiation. 
You know, yeah. I mean, how are you going to differentiate yourself from a value proposition standpoint that's going to make you stand out? Either if you're competing with other PEOs or as is often the case, you're competing with the internal solution. Yeah. You know, what are you bringing to the yeah. table that's yeah. going to be compelling to somebody that's making a decision? You've got to be able to answer that in, a, in an honest way and feel good about that in order to be successful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I think that's perfect. And, and I, I agree. Uh, so, okay, Jules, let's go to your passion, uh, theater, yeah. uh, where you met your wife and uh, where lot, you spend a lot of time. Are you still involved with the theater in Palm Beach? I am. I'm very heavily uh, involved. I've been on the board for, uh, gosh, more than a decade. And um, I, uh, I continue to be, I was chairman of the board for six years. I'm not chairman right now, but I, I'm still on the board and still involved uh, in some ways, which is great uh, artistically, you know, mm -hmm. occasionally um, directing uh, uh, readings, um, mm -hmm. very heavily affiliated with something that we call the New Play Festival, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that's done every year to develop new uh, mm -hmm. work. and. Uh, I love it, you know, it continues to be a passion of mine. And the name of the theater is? It's Palm Beach Drama Works, uh, oh, which yeah. is a wonderful uh, leading yeah. uh, regional theater uh, with uh, a, a, a husband and wife couple who are amazingly talented. Uh, Bill Hayes, the artistic director, Sue Allen Farrell is the managing director mm -hmm. and uh, wonderful people and dear, dear friends. And uh, they've done an amazing job, you know, yeah. Uh, building that theater uh, into uh, the wonderful organization that it is. Yeah, it's a neat venue. Uh, you hosted us all there, the, the Napier Board, uh, to see of mice and men there one night, which was yeah. which was was so great. It was a special night, and it was just such a great production. Um, so, what's your favorite play? My favorite play is uh, Henrik Ibsen's Doll's House. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which okay. is interesting because I'm hoping I can get there. It's actually being revived on Broadway right now, which yeah. happens, uh, which happens periodically. Yeah. But uh, many, many years ago, I had the privilege of directing a professional uh, summer theater production of A Doll's House. Uh, this goes back a lot of years, and uh, I, I think Ibsen was way ahead of his time. Yeah. And uh, really, really, it's amazing how relevant. Uh, those yeah. things you talk about me too i mean it's yeah. incredible i yeah. mean that, yeah. you know play was written i believe in 1879 yeah. you know and it was scandalous at the time still relevant yeah, but, yeah. But still highly relevant that's great um so i i usually ask uh, what's something people don't know about you but i'm going to tee up the answer so when you met diane you brought a different dimension and i use the word intentionally dimension to her family. Do you remember what that was? Like why they were so happy to see you come into their I family? I do. It's because I was a foot taller than uh, anybody else in the uh, in, in the family. And I may have told you the story. Diane's uh, parents, unfortunately, are deceased for many years, but um, her mom was maybe four foot ten. Mm -hmm. And uh, her dad, God bless him, may he rest in peace, was like five feet even. Uh, mm -hmm. He had a growth hormone deficiency. So Diane at 5'2", her sister's mm -hmm. also not five feet. So Diane was the tall one in the family. Mm -hmm. The first time I was at their house for dinner, mm -hmm. the clocks had to be changed for daylight savings time. And my mother-in-law, Sylvia, said, Max, you know, go get the, the stepladder. You know, we've got the clock up there above the sink. It needs to be changed. 
I said, that's okay, Mrs. Walker. You know, no, no need for that. And I reached up and I changed the hands, you know, on the mm -hmm. clock. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. turned around and three people were staring at me with their mouths open like Gulliver had basically uh, had basically come to the house. So that's the value. That's that's really the uh, the only value that I brought to the family. You know, after a great life and a great career, you got to be known for something. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, so uh, that was it. Well, pal, you've been so uh, generous with your time today, and I really do appreciate it. And uh, uh, this is just great. I know you're somebody that uh, people want to hear from. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll have you to kick around a couple of years more. Uh, we'll see. It could be. It could but, be. You never know. But uh, yeah, the the pride of Wyckoff, New Jersey. That that, yeah. that that's it. So, uh, and I'm so sorry for the Fairlawn flub. I will will never. I'll, okay. I'll sorry, have to. Close. You know, five, to, ten minutes away. You 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 you're in the neighborhood. I'm gonna have to atone for that for for a very long time. Anyway, so okay. thanks so much for the time. I really thank do you, appreciate Pat. it, Pat. I've enjoyed and, it as uh, Mark Perlberg, uh, thank you so much. All right, take care.